This week on Dig Me Out. Jay, this week we're back with a roundtable and we're doing our second Dig in Your Scene roundtable, Jay. And uh, this one is one that I think we've had pretty much uh, on the short list since the beginning, since we came up with this idea of uh, digging into the scenes. It all started with the, the, the test pilot, I guess, the test episode of Australia last year. We actually did the whole country of Australia in one episode, which was kind of a daunting task yeah. but then we we narrowed it down to cities in the united in the united states we started with chicago in the spring we decided to do boston second because probably after seattle boston and chicago are probably tied for the most bands that people recognize remember know were a part of the 90s music scene more so than any other scenes i think those two cities are one in one a and one b after Seattle, would you agree, Jay? Yeah, and we've, uh, yeah, and we've reviewed a couple of the bands that we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, pre- prepping for this episode, I realized we have dozens more to review. So, oh yeah, I think this would be a good primer for for seasons to come as well. We've reviewed a lot of bands. We've talked to people from bands. We had Bill on from Buffalo Tom back, back a couple years ago, telling us about what was going on back then. So, lots of fun stuff going to happen in this episode. We have a great roundtable lined up. I'm going to start with our returning champion from the band, the Sheila Divine, Dear Leader. They had a new album out just around this time last year called The Morbs, fourth album from the band. And I believe they have a show coming up soon. Mr. Aaron Perino, welcome back to the show. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me back, guys. Absolutely. I think this is the first one since our shoegaze roundtable. <laughs> That's right. Before. Yes. Where we tried to... Explain shoegaze, which was certainly a uh, interesting task. Trying to narrow that one down. <laughs> um, joining us from the from the left coast, I believe. I'm, I think I have that correct. Uh, from the band Letters to Cleo, Kay Hanley. Welcome to the show, Kay. Hey, thanks. Nice to be here. First of all, it's perfect timing. You guys reunited. And you have a new EP out. Yes. And that's just, uh, I just read, actually, today as we're recording this, it went up on Stereo Gum, the, uh, that Team Coco is streaming the album for people to check out, which is very yep. cool. And then you have some gigs lined up uh, in uh, California, Chicago, New York, Boston coming up. Is it, uh, let me just ask, is touring now uh, a quite different from touring in the 90s? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so many, so many reasons why it's different. Um, I'm 20 years older, so uh, I'm less likely to want to work a double shift and get into a van and uh, <laughs> sit in it for eight hours. Um, <laughs> so it, take, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of motivation for me to uh, to leave my comfortable environment. Mm. Yeah. I would imagine that the you want the start times to be a little bit earlier now too. Totally, yeah. I, it's so to say it, but like I, I, someone was complaining about something starting at eleven o'clock a few weeks ago, and I was just like, oh my god, I couldn't leave the house before eleven mm. back in the day. Like if a party started at eleven, it might as well have been four in the afternoon. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Back in the '90s or back in the tw- in our 20s, that makes sense. <laughs> Finally, joining us from 88.1 FM WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT's college radio station, Mr. Keith Sawyer. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I gave you guys a little rundown before we started recording, but I want to explain to the audience what we're doing here. 
we're going to start with looking at Boston and the music scene and trying to understand what, what made it so vital, what made it so important to telling the story of what the 90s were in terms of music and, and, and all the alternative music and indie and rock music of the 90s. Um, but I think before we can understand the 90s, we need to go back a little bit and, and take a look at the 80s. I'm going to lean on Kay a little bit on this one, just because Letters to Cleo formed in 1990. I'm correct on that, right? Yeah. So you were what, like early 20s when that happened? Uh, yep, I was 21, I guess, or 22. Okay. So I assume then in the late 80s, you were probably going out to shows, taking in bands that were playing in the area who were yeah. you who are you I, going to see around I, that time i had a band before letters to cleo so i was 18 when i first started playing in bands around town and okay. uh and yeah and i was a huge fan of the local music scene i was out constantly and i remember my sort of version of seeing like the beatles and the stones was seeing tribe and heretics go head to head in the rumble <laughs> And I think it was like at what is now Avalon. And there were, I mean, these were two local bands and the place, there were over a thousand people there probably to see this. It was just such a monster scene in the eighties. And there was, there were so many amazing bands and it was so inspiring to go out. And people were like Keith Richards to me. Right. And I think in doing a little bit of research, the one thing that I, was surprised is how many bands that I thought of as being 90s bands, but they actually had formed in the early to mid 80s. Bands like what was yeah. Dinosaur and then became Dinosaur Jr. They were around in the very early 80s. Uh, the Del Fuegos, Big Dipper, Gigolo Ants. These are, you know, these are bands that when I thought of them as, you know, what era they sort of took part in. I was always thinking, oh, these are 90s bands because those were when the albums you know, that I knew came out. But it seemed like there was a much more vibrant scene, maybe even then in Seattle. I don't want to diss Seattle, but there were a lot more bands in the Boston scene. What do you attribute that to? Is that because of there's a number of colleges there? Is there a supportive recording and, and indie label scene there? What, what uh, ideas do you have on that? Um, I, I think it's all of the above. Um, in my experience, it wasn't so much the kids in, college, in the colleges around town coming out to see bands as much as it was kids coming to go to school, to coming to Boston to go to college and starting bands, okay. which made it such okay. a vibrant scene. And then they would just hang; they would stay. And um, and then of course we had the you know incredible network of radio station, college radio stations, and two major, uh, major market radio stations in FNX and BCN that's, that actively supported local music and played. So I was just, I was, I was just listening to, uh, Dogzilla today. <laughs> I was like, this used, this was a local band that would play at the rat and was like on at drive time on BCN. Like we just had a really supportive, uh, really supportive radio scene. And, um, and yeah, the clubs, it was just a very fertile environment for, for being in a band and going to see bands. All right, Aaron, I, I want to jump through this to you. Um, I know Sheila Devine formed a little bit later in terms of its history. Um, yep. Where do you sort of come in with going to shows and, and sort of getting immersed in that sort of scene? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I went to college in Oneonta, New York, um, and I mean, we, I was in a band there and we chose Boston to move to, move to because of the music scene there. So it was bands like Letters to Cleo and Pixies, Buffalo Tom, all those. And we were like, we should move there. Uh, so, I mean, I was more late nineties, you know, mid to late nineties. So I was, you know, going to see bands like uh, the Elevator Drops and Cherry 2000. I don't know, a bunch of bands like that. So smaller local bands. Okay. So Keith, and Tugboat Annie. Tugboat Annie, that's right. We can't forget that. Yeah. yeah. Keith, when do you enter the scene in terms of the uh in terms of the Boston radio market? I you think it was in the mid nineties that you said? Yeah, pretty pretty similar 
timing. I moved to Boston in 96. I'd gone to school, actually up in Rochester, New York, and done radio up there as well as radio in New Jersey. So when I came here, um, you know, sort of those bands that Aaron mentioned, I mean, Papa's Fritas to me was, was oh, like yeah. one of the first ones that I really saw that they were, uh, they had a national presence, but they weren't necessarily, you know, that type of band that was going to move up to a major label, but just everybody knew them. just sort of mentioned in passing the rumble but uh, when you look at the really what the rumble did and what it still does in giving local bands a showcase you know what it what it is is it was sponsored by wbcn and it was just a competition it was like a round robin competition uh, in the local clubs that uh, pretty much any local band had a shot to be in it you could only do it once and it happened every single year and it created a lot of press around the local bands and if, you know, even if the band went to the second round or made it to the finals, you know, that, that meant something. Is that still going you know, on? I think Aaron could talk about it because his, his band won it one year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it definitely like, you know, it, you'd get tons of press, you know, all, all the the noise and all these people covered it. And then, you know, when we won, I mean, that was definitely, I feel like, the, the launching pad to, you know, us getting a record deal and all that kind of stuff. So, why do you think that that worked there? Because that's an idea that I think a lot of scenes have tried um, or dabbled in, and it just never quite works. Like it might work for one year or partially work for. But well, I mean, you you, it took hold there. I mean, WBCN is like was like a huge. You know, I would say it's like you know in the top eight stations at the time um, in the country. So they it was their thing. So I mean, Oedipus, who is the program director, I mean, he had a lot of power. Um, but I think it's just because of the magnitude of that station. Um, I think that's why it was such a big deal. I mean, I, when we won it, like you would get to open. They they would have you know like those alternative station concerts so like we got to open the the river rave and it was like with the cult and aerosmith and Coldplay, and you know <laughs> that kind of stuff wow that's a heck of a yeah band. yeah and you I, said the name oedipus and i mean he was doing he probably was the first punk rock dj ever on it was wtbs at the time before wmbr changed its call letters when he moved to BCN, he really supported the local scene. And then you have FNX coming in, which was an independent station that was competing with BCN, and they really pushed the local scene as well. Uh, you know, as Kay said, you it wasn't anything to turn on the radio and hear, you know, a song by Smack Melon, you know, on the commercial <laughs> level. And nobody would know who Smack Melon was unless you were in Boston. And I think in looking at some of the 90s stuff, one of the things that I noticed is the diversity of bands that you don't see in a lot of uh, other cities. You know, when you, people obviously associate grunge with Seattle, even though there were some other bands that, that came out of that were, that weren't grungy, like the Posies, for example. But overall, there's this tag of that. And then when you when we talked about Chicago, we got into like there's a lot of heavy industrial music that came out of Chicago. There's a lot of cheap trick inspired. Uh, hard rock or power pop if you will but when i look at bands like morphine bands like the dam builders bands like the drop 19s uh magnetic fields there is a wide range of sounds to the point where you can't even really define i think boston as having a unique sound is there and i've only been to boston once in my life so i don't i have zero experience with the town or, or what have you is it a, a scene in which there is sort of a concentrated area where bands are playing or is it 
everywhere around the city where you can go to clubs to see bands play. How how does like the I guess you'd say the the geography of Boston work into this? Because uh, it seems like it's a big array of sounds that are coming out of the city in the '90s. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree. I was thinking about that same thing as well. You know, listening back to the Chicago episode, there were some very distinct sounds coming out of Chicago. Boston, it's really hard to pinpoint one thing. Uh, it's certainly, you know, uh, where the Middle East and TT the Bears um, are or were. Middle East is still there. TT is not anymore. In Central Square, Cambridge, that was a big place to go to. Lansdowne Street, right across from Fenway Park, there were always uh, several clubs in that area. But then there were other clubs that were just kind of distributed around, you know, whether they were in JP or, you know, like the Channel, which was over in, in Fort Point. Um, it, Alston, the Alston scene, which was more punky. You know, there was just, there were venues everywhere. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, like, Middle East and TTs were right right next to each other, so the, the, that was like, you know, kind of like you could always go there and find something to see. Um and that was, and then like Lansdowne Street was was more of the like, you know, that was Don Law who owned that whole section. So it was those were like more of the, you know, national acts uh, would play there. Yes, and the Paradise too. I forgot that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Are there some scenes, uh, maybe close but slightly separate, like either suburban Cambridge? I mean, like little offshoots. Does that sort of exist? No, I would I would say it's right within that Somerville, Cambridge, you know, Boston, Jamaica Plain area, Alston, you know, and it's all they're all right close together. If it wasn't there, it was probably in Amherst or it was probably coming yeah. out of Providence. Okay. Yeah. Providence had like, you know, the art kind of art rock scene. Um and then yeah, I would say Amherst obviously has plenty. You could do a whole episode on that. And there's so many bands now that sound like the Amherst sound. It's crazy. The Shield Divine and and Letters to Cleo have something in common, which is, I, I guess you probably you guys probably know this, just Cherry Disc Records. Right. <laughs> sure. We also have the same manager, so. Yeah. <laughs> so that would make sense. So we shared a rehearsal space for a minute. We shared a record label for a minute. We shared a manager. Lots of things in common. Yeah. Did not share a sound, though. <laughs> it's true. It seems like there's more than a few solid record labels. You know, there's every every city has a billion record labels that have, like, two bands on it with, you know, no distribution. Can you guys get into, I guess, some of the indie labels that were... You know, in some ways, acting like almost scouts for the uh, for the majors at the time. In terms of you know, a lot of smaller labels ended up getting scooped up in the '90s, whether you know bought out completely or or as a percentage. You know, I'm thinking of like there are there's labels like Rounder or um, sure uh, a couple other ones. Does that do you Tang think, would be one? Tang. Tang. Tang yeah. Yep. I think it was more, it, when you're talking about the 90s, especially when bands started getting scooped up, it was less about the label. And it, there was this interesting thing happening at the time with studios and producers. Like, yeah, Fort Apache. Fort Apache yep. and Q okay. Division, you know, were like big examples of that. And, you know, Mike Deneen on the pop side and Sean Slade and Paul Coldery on the on the sort of more... Uh, you know, they did, they did Radiohead, the first Radiohead record, but they also did like all the Juliana stuff and Belly and, you know, so we, we had a band had like sort of like their, their studio and producer affiliations. And that was where they were getting their juice more from local labels. I mean, in the late eighties with Tang and stuff, that was a little different, mm-hmm. um, but those bands didn't, I mean, they went on to, like, Lemonheads were on Tang. and But I don't, I feel like that label affiliation, it was sort of more historical than it was, you know, sort of like a launching pad for a bigger career. So would the, would Agreed. the people at the labels, would they be, sort of have the ear of the majors and and be talking to them, saying, hey, we've got this band in here, you might want to check out. 
was there any sort of you know was there communication between the the studios or was it just that the studio the, the labels were keeping an eye on what was being recorded like how did that work in my experience band, bands would get attention from touring and word of mouth and um that i have very few examples uh in at least in in my history very few examples of uh bands staying at home in boston waiting for the phone to ring like that just yeah. didn't happen you know mm. it was like you had to like be out there you know like turning the wheels pounding the pavement getting fans playing shows i don't know aaron did you feel that way yeah, I mean, it was always like, you know, you you do the touring, but then obviously you do your showcases in New York City. It would, it would always be like, all right, we got a showcase at Brownies. And then that would yeah. be where the labels would come to like, you know, see your eight o'clock set. And that was the, the big thing. And then and then if like it went to the next level, then it would be like the scouts coming to Boston to see the real show. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, sort of when you look at the story of like throwing muses or, or pixies, you know, it was 4 AD that they kind of directly dealt with. And once again, yeah. you know, Fort Apache was part of that whole thing. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, you talk to Paul, like, I mean, when the pixies, it was like literally like the call went there and they're like, hey, we got this band. And like, they like drew straws basically. And Paul's like, all right, I'll do it. And then it just turned into, you know, something epic. The other thing we need to talk about is, you know, we've talked about the radio side, but there's also the the newspaper side because this is pre-internet. Mm. We're talking about, I think, uh, Keith, you had mentioned when we were um, chatting about this. There is the Boston Phoenix. Was is that paper still around? No, but it it was great, but it doesn't exist. And then, yeah, it was like it was like our Village Voice if you had yeah. to put it in and context. It would- and the Phoenix was also owned by WFNX, so that's the radio station. So it was like a, you know, that those were connected as well. So. Oh, okay. So huh, that's different. Yeah, that usually the the weekly is owned by like the daily. At least that's been in my experience. It's like the daily has, you know, the big circulation, and then they do a weekly arts paper. That's different that it's um, owned by the radio station. So was that the paper? Or vice versa. Yeah, it, that was pretty much it. it. Was just the Phoenix then, for, as far as weeklies go. There wasn't any. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, Aaron mentioned the noise, which was, yeah. is like a more independent, and they very much focus on you know not sort of that uh, the bands that are at that major label level or just sub, but really the just the local bands. But the noise yeah. is very passionate. Yeah, that'd be where you'd get your first review and it'd be like, you know, some guy like coming to your show and giving you like a terrible, like, and you'd, you'd get really mad. Of <laughs> course, <laughs> <laughs> you'd just be nobody be <laughs> on a Tuesday night and some guy would come out and review your show and just rip you to pieces. And you'd just be, Wait, what? <laughs> but it was just. But you were in print. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was so part of the deal, though. And and you just once you put your first band together and you played your first couple of shows, get ready because the Phoenix. I mean, because the noise was coming for you. And if you got if you got out of your career and as a as a Boston band without getting ripped to shreds by the noise, then you were not in a Boston band. I mean, Pitchfork basically ripped it, ripped them off. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like later on, at the end of the '90s, early 2000s, I think the Weekly Dig came along, and they were yeah. they were kind of more of once again a local version of the of the Phoenix. Not to say the Phoenix wasn't local, but okay. So when does Newberry Comics enter into all this? Because that's the thing that I think a lot oh. of people who are not familiar with Boston on a you know level that you guys are, but maybe have bought a uh, a you know, a vinyl record a reissue recently. Sometimes you can get the Newberry Comics ed- version with the special, you know, color vinyl. Where where do they factor in? And and what other record stores were supportive? I guess you'd say of of stocking local artists or or even you know sometimes uh, here in Columbus where I'm at, um, you know, you'd see bands doing in stores at record stores what were some of them that now that a lot of record stores gone away what were some that uh you guys remember yeah, New- newberry's is the big daddy you know yeah. of 
of the it. whole team. I mean, uh, call it a chain if you want to. I mean, but they had 20 or 30 different locations all across the city and all across, you know, different parts of New England. Yet they were, you know, very, very much focused on uh, purchasing and selling local bands. Huh. You know, to the point where even, you know, they would have the cards would be a different color, you know, in order to show you, oh, okay, these are local bands that we're stocking here. And they just, you know, as far as doing in-stores, had such a, a powerful reach. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of other uh, record stores that supported the bands in the area, but Newberry's was the big monster. Yep. At the beginning, we always did a lot of stuff with strawberries. And yep. that was like... Our, that was the place that supported us early on. It wasn't, it was like Newberry, Newberry Comics was like so cool. It was like super yeah. cool. And we weren't really cool enough for them for a long time. <laughs> That's what we thought. So we were strawberries people for a minute. But, um, yeah, but by the time I had moved here in 96, it seemed like strawberries had gotten a little more corporatized. But yeah. I don't know if that was your perception. Probably. Yeah, we, yeah. we had moved on by then, I'm, I'm sure. And, uh, oh no, I think when we did, we did a big outdoor thing for the release of Go, and that was probably in 97. And I think that was for strawberries. Hmm. No, maybe, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, there was also a big Tower Records, which was like, you know, it had yeah. multi floor and on the corner of Newberry Street, and that was like. I don't know. I always went there destination-wise. Yeah. I always used to, I mean, the place to get the local singles for me was in your ear, and it was right yeah. near where the uh, Paradise was, so it was very easy if you were going to a show, especially just to pop in there, see what was in the vinyl section. They had another location in Harvard Square as well, and then there's just there were just a bunch of just single stores that were all around yeah. um, that you could go to. My favorite was uh, Mystery Train. Oh yeah, Mystery State. And that was where well, Dave Gibbs from the Gigolawants worked there forever. Yeah. And it what was, was the one in Davis Square? Is that Disc Diggers? Is that? Uh, oh. I forget the name of it now. There was another one in Davis Square in Somerville that was really good. I forgot about Mystery Train. That's a good one. That they always had yeah. like the like dollar CD thing, and it was like, you you know I was so poor, so I would just buy all the the cutout yeah, sort of the sounds of Boston, the St. Mark sounds of Boston. Strawberries was, I just looked it up. That was a part of like Camelot and um, some Ooh. other ones. It looks like it yep. was, I guess, uh, or in record town. I didn't realize that. Huh? There's also yeah, a it Facebook like It was page. a little more corporate. I remember when I came down here to interview in like 95 and I went to a strawberries thinking that I was, Oh, this was going to be so amazing. And instead it was like, here's the top 20 billboard, you know? And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. You know, we've covered a lot of the various aspects of the 90s in Boston. There's also always like an X factor. And usually that's made, that's a, a person or a group or something like that. Here in Columbus, uh, we have an X, or we had, I guess you'd say, in the 90s and 2000s. There's a guy who ran a club, but then he also would put on festivals. And he's kind of this kind of consigliere of the Columbus music scene, basically... You know, if you were blessed by him, you were going to get all of the ins of playing his club and getting on this local festival. And, you know, you're going to open for national bands when they come through, that sort of thing. Does, does Boston have any sort of people like that who are just sort of like these scene? The scenesters. Know, the scenesters, I guess you'd say. Well, in the 80s, undoubtedly, it was Billy Ruane. For sure. Billy sure. Ruane. Okay, who's that? <laughs> And he was, uh, he was an interesting character because he this, this, this was the rumor about Billy, uh, who um, sadly passed away a few years ago. But he was just like, until his last day on earth, was probably out seeing a local band. But word on the street was that he, he came from a lot of money. He had a lot of money. He was also, he was mentally ill. Um, but he... So could he was well enough to like take care of himself and uh he got this idea that he wanted to start uh, you know he just loved rock and roll music he loved punk rock he loved 
being part of a party. And so he apparently went to Joseph and Nabil. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. This was just like a rumor. He went to Joseph and Nabil at the Middle East and said, I want to start a rock and roll room in in the back of your restaurant. It was initially an expansion of a birthday party that he had at TT the Bears that he couldn't feature all the bands he wanted to. So (laughs) it went into the Middle East downstairs. But it wouldn't have been downstairs because this was the upstairs time and there was no downstairs until the 90s. It was a bowling alley or something like that at the time, right? Right. But the the upstairs room was a, a, a rock and roll room for a long time, for for many, many years, at least well over a decade before they ever started the downstairs room. So it's t- it's entirely possible that that's why the downstairs room got started. Yeah. Downstairs at the Middle East, but the upstairs room. And from what I heard, he personally booked and paid the bands and would like give these huge guarantees to bands, to touring bands to come through and play. That's what I heard. But Uh, then he was just out every night seeing bands and he was just like this crazy, weird, insane, literally insane dude. Yeah, there's going to be a document. They're making a documentary on him, so it's coming out soon. So. Oh. If you, if you didn't go to a show and see Billy Rain strip down to his underwear at some point in time, <laughs> then you were not a Boston Seamster. Yeah. yeah. If you didn't take the tea and see Mary, Lord busking, Mary Lou Lord busking somewhere, you weren't a Boston Seamster. That's true. I was going to say, Jay, that kind of sounds like Don B a little bit, uh, who people in Columbus will know, Don, the famous Don B, who would hang out at Bernie's and other clubs and would implore bands uh, when it was 2 a.m. and everyone was drunk. He would implore the band playing to play the Batman theme so that he could get up and sing with the band. And uh, I feel like I did. I, I, I think I was a part of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were if you played your uh, Yeah. If you yeah, played one of the small, I, I think, yeah. You know, Billy probably didn't lack the didn't have the business sense of what kind of the person you're looking for, but he certainly had the passion and the resources. Yeah. And then okay. another you know, I think of oh. you mentioned Oedipus before too, and I think Oedipus would be another person who really maybe more had that business sense and that guiding hand of at least yeah. keeping the, the scene going and promoting more trying to get bands to turn into national acts. Yeah, and then uh, Lily Dennison um, oh as well. God, I think. She she used to book this like restaurant called the Green Street, and she would have like in, just crazy on a Monday night. It'd be like Elliot Smith playing, um, and just you know to like twenty people. It was it was yeah. crazy. Huh. And then Jeannie and Bonnie from TTs for sure. Just yep. Amazing, amazing champions. So let's take a look at legacy of the Boston scene because, you know, there was like a lot of scenes. There were a lot of bands that got signed, a lot of bands that got thrown out into the major label world. They got one song on the radio. Maybe they got a second record. Maybe they didn't. And like a lot of scenes, there was some fatigue. But it seemed like Boston didn't suffer. You know, when we talked with the Chicago people about that round table, there was really a, not a lot of bands that they could point to that they thought, well, you know, this, these bands are still carrying on the legacy or there's still a vibrant scene going on. I want to get your guys' opinions as to, there's a couple bands that I know that are, are from Boston. Speedy Ortiz is one of them that has been mm-hmm. making some noise. Um, then you can go back a couple, you know, earlier, like Passion Pit is from Boston and then, or even mm-hmm. earlier than that, like the Dresden Dolls, which are quite different than a lot of the bands that we're talking about. But you know, what what do you guys see as far as the legacy of the '90s, just as terms of the Boston scene and and what 
developed there and, and in what has existed in the last 15 years since then? Yeah, I think it, there's still a lot of venues. The venues are different but uh, than they might have been you know, 20 years ago. Middle East is certainly still around and the Paradise are still around, but there's still a lot of venues for bands to play and there's a lot of bands out there playing them. I don't know. I mean, I think of bands like Quilt, uh, mm-hmm. um, Mexican Summer, who's a band that's that's been able to have some sort of measure of success. I think you could make a tantamount. They sound sort of like the Breeders' second record in that they, they can be very diverse yet still have that similar sound to them. You know, there's a band called Bent Shapes, which is on Slumberland Records, which I really like. Kind of that fierce, poppy sound. Um, there's a sort of a local unsigned band called Weekend Friends, uh, which I think they, they did pretty well in the Rumble. And they seem to get a lot of uh, press. And they're very fun. They sort of have that Julie Ruinish sound to them. You know, so there's still bands around here and there's still bands that are doing well, but I think it's sort of endemic of, of all across the United States that um, you know, the music industry is such that it's a lot harder to gain uh, national attention and to you know, actually be a hit maker. Right. You know, whereas in the 80s and the 90s, there was still that possibility. You know, and that sort of theory you threw out there of bands sort of getting chewed up and spit out by the major label system that was Boston in a nutshell. You know, you, you look down the list of all of those bands of Cave Dogs or Big, you know, Big Dipper or, you know, any of the, any of the rest of them. It's like they had that one shot or they had two shots. You know, the Dam Builders, Buffalo Tom. They may have some modicum of success, but they never really broke nationally into, like, the Billboard charts. They got well-known. They could tour. They could survive. But they weren't having hits on the radio. Well, I think of I think back to um, Jen Trinan, and I read her book uh, years yep. ago, Everything I'm Cracked Up to Be, and it's pretty much the tell the tale of I think in a lot of ways the '90s of you know the the demos reaching the right person, and then they're super excited about it, but then they want to tweak some things, and then the record comes out, and there's the first single, and it kind of does well, and let's put out the second single, it doesn't do as well, but we better get back in the studio, and you got to be touring to push the record and you got to do this festival over here and go to this radio station festival there. And then the second record comes out and nothing happens. And now you're dropped. And it's like, and I think, and Jay and I have had, you know, over the six years we've been doing this podcast, I can't tell you how many bands that were like, well, we want to check out the other albums in this band's catalog that we're looking into, but there's only one other one because they got dropped after their second, you know, yeah, after a second record. Ended up owing the money, owing the label a bunch of money, couldn't pay it off, and there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the story too. Is that uh, I think if you if you if the record labels ever had to call in their debts with all the '90s bands that still have outstanding, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of money. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, there's a there was a great article recently I read from now I forget the name of the guy who was the head of Too Much Joy, but he you know he and his band way in debt, um, and he was trying to figure out how much his band was making from Spotify, and just the constant um, journey that he had to take in order to try and even get a, a slip that showed how much he was making. Hmm. You know, if your if your band is in the negative, it really they don't care about you. Uh, the new new boss is worse than the old boss. It turns out. Yeah. So, and the streaming services are don't even get me started. But <laughs> yeah, let's let me ask you about that. Since you have the new EP out, and it's and you guys are in control of that, are you going to yeah. put that up on Spotify and and title and those types of places, or are you just going to keep it to a physical release with maybe like an Apple or an iTunes, you know? Pay download. No, um, no, we we will definitely be utilizing the streaming services. I, I personally am um, a fan of streaming. Uh, I am also a big proponent um, of of subscriptions, mm-hmm. and I'm very very anti freemium. And what actually one of the things that I've been sort of dedicated to for the last year and a half is advocating for. Uh, for fair streaming rates on on the digital platforms, and I'm co-executive director of an advocacy group called Songwriters of North America, which is working on these issues. So, um, 
So uh, I am, I mean, the consumer has spoken and the way they would like to consume music is through streaming. And I think that, uh, I think it, the future is very bright for artists and songwriters um, as long as we get the rate right. And that's what we're working on now is getting the rate right. Okay. <laughs> also making sure that people subscribe. No freemium. Just have, a freemium. Isn't that the Trust. entire history of the of the record industry though, that they haven't gotten the rate right ever with the artists? Going back to the forty no. fives in the nineteen fifties that with early well, it, no. it, it doesn't pay to do so for them. Um you yeah. know, there there are many many problems with the label, and the labels still present a huge problem. Uh, you know, the labels made deals with you know the streaming services, most notably Spotify, mm -hmm. where um, you know Spotify pays out seventy percent of its profits to stakeholders, and um, the label. So the labels took and they made the deal with the label. So the labels get. I believe of if if you consider the seventy five percent that the labels are getting from Spotify a pie of a hundred percent, they are taking ninety six and giving songwriters four percent of the pie. So it's like if you're a songwriter right now, you are in very bad shape. If you are an artist, not as bad. But um, but still, there's no transparency. We don't know what what the labels are paying out to artists. That seems ridiculous, considering it's all digital, and it's all traceable. Yeah. That doesn't seem right? that doesn't seem possible. That's that is that there's no records to back all that information up, considering it's all just ones and zeros to begin with. At that point, right. it's not like you're dealing with SoundScan or indie record stores that don't utilize it, and you're you know, go based on record shipped and that sort of thing. It's like, these are just ones and zeros being processed on a platform. So how is that not? Yeah, but if it doesn't pay universal to invest the money in order to get very precise. You know, that's basically what it comes down to. If artists want to see what they're making, they should, or in songwriters, if you want to find out what your writer's share is earning, you can look at the back of your ASCAP or BMI statement and see. There, there is a digital, uh, probably on the very last page, and it's a very small percentage um, of what you're making overall. But you, you can see generally what you're making through the streaming services and through the internet. Jay, did you have any uh, questions you wanted to wrap up with? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear from each of uh, our, our uh, panelists here on uh, give me one artist that you uh, frequently go back and listen to from from Boston that probably the rest of the country doesn't know and you often find yourselves uh, saying how the hell was this band not bigger who, who jumps out in your mind Aaron uh, for me I I always I always listen to this uh, album uh, by this band wheat called hope and Adams um, I 100 agree I still love that album like it's I don't know it still holds up and, and they had their chance that the album after that was distributed by Columbia and yeah, it's a great album, the per second, per second, per second, but it's it, it doesn't sound like their first two. Yeah, did Keith, you have anything you? else, Keith? Or is that yours? Yeah, and for me, just a step to the left of that, the Pernice Brothers. You know, they were on Sub Pop for their first record and then decided to go off on their own. And the next two records they put out after that, uh, The World Won't End, Yours, Mine, and Ours, were probably my favorite albums of, you know, the 2001, 2003. And they have this very, you know, it's kind of this Morrissey meets pulpish sound, but it's very ornate, but it's got this sort of underlayer depression. 
whenever I hear like the national, I'm thinking, you know, they could have been the national. They were right there. Totally. You know, but uh, they were maybe just a little bit more sumptuous in their sound than, you know, the national were a little bit more of that joy divisionist depression. I, that's a band I've always, Pernice Brothers is somebody I've always wanted to uh, dig into, and I just always forget to, to dig into their catalog. Kay, what about you? Band or, um, or album? Wow. Totally forgot about Pernice Brothers, who I just love so, so much, and I think joe is really hilarious and great um oh boy so so many you know shit You're, i <laughs> uh the gravel kid wants i mean morphine broke through um yeah. more more than any that more than anyone else of that era i would say but i said i listened to the, i pull those guys out all the time one sneaky one is uh, Submarines, which you don't think of as a Boston band because they're in L.A., but it's Blake Hazard and Jack Drag, who are both, you know, total roots in Boston. We've Love done Jack Drag. We did that record, Dope Box, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. and he just what an amazing producer and musician. Yeah. You know, everything he touched sounded gorgeous. And still does. All right. I think uh, we've taken up enough of everybody's Wednesday evening here. Um <laughs> I want to thank all three of you for for joining us and and shedding a light on the Boston scene of the '90s and and I think it's given everybody you know a little bit more of a taste of of what you guys saw and heard and were a part of. You know, I think this is another interesting episode that people will will go back to when they're you know trying to figure out what the hell happened in the '90s with all the bands and scenes that were happening. So. I want to go around the room and and plug everybody's stuff. Kay, I mentioned you've got the pledge music going on for Letters to Cleo. Mm -hmm. People can still go there and um, they can pick up a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I was pissed because I saw that there was a 7-inch for Here and Now that's gone. I would have liked to have grabbed that that for my 7-inch collection, but uh, I need to uh, start going to the used music stores to find one, I guess. But you've got some gigs coming up uh, starting the 20th. Uh, in San Francisco, going through the 19th in Boston. That's all at letters to Cleo.net. That's people correct. Can, that people can go to. Um, oh, I wanted to ask, because I have a four-year-old daughter. Um, uh-huh. what, what's the status of Doc McStuffins? <laughs> um, I don't think I'm allowed to say. Oh. <laughs> but season four is still, is still going strong. Okay. So, um, but there will be. I think there will be some news soon about Doc McStuffins and its future or lack thereof. Very soon. Okay, I have a very worried four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. It's one of the five shows she'll watch. So. Oh no! It's not my call. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, I'll. I'll- Call her every morning and sing <laughs> She would love that. <laughs> She's obsessed with uh, with that show. That's the only show she'll watch on her iPad. And then on um, regular TV, she'll watch uh, Beat Bugs, the show on Netflix that has all the Beatles songs. So, oh my god, I don't know about that. Oh, you, it's a it's a show built around Beatles, but reinterpreted by modern artists. So, like Eddie oh, Vedder god. does a song and. Sia does a song and uh, Pink does a song, and so I've got her on a, I've got her a Beatles. That sounds like literally the most expensive show I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> yeah, there, it, it, there's an interesting backstory. You can go read about it, but the guy t- it took like three years for the guy to get the rights to do, and he had to like finally meet with like the with like McCartney and Ringo. To, to yeah. like get the, he had to go and take them like sketches of what the show was going to look like and explain, you know, what he was doing with the show and like basically draw the show before he had the rights to actually make it. So, I think so. But yeah, so now we get in the car every morning and she's like, "Play Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds." I'm like, "Okay, all right, we'll do this for the 15th day in a row. We're gonna we're gonna listen to the same song. Can we try? <laughs> can we move to to I'm the Walrus yet? Because I'm getting a little tired of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but." That's neither here nor there. Aaron, 
Love it. Shield Divine oh, is yeah. coming up November 12th, correct? Yeah. The Great Scott. Where is that? That's right. It's just a small club in, in Alston, Rock City. Excellent. And people can go to, I guess Facebook yeah. is the best place to find out news and stuff on uh, the Shield Divine? Yeah, pretty much. We, we're we're, we're, uh, we're semi-professional. Yeah. Well, I noticed you still have a MySpace page. So. <laughs> Do we really? Oh, I don't know my password, so. <laughs> That's all right. Justin Timberlake owns that now anyway, so he has your yeah. password. It's true. <laughs> and uh, Keith, when can people hear you at WMBR 88.1 in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts? Just go to WMBR.org. We've got two weeks of streaming content on there, so all the shows are archived. Or if you want to look up my playlist, they're at track-blaster.com. And feel free to just uh, search on my name and listeners out there. If uh, if there's a show there you want to see, like, uh, I recently did a 90s power pop retrospective just shoot me an email I can get it in your hands I'm not too hard to find excellent and we greatly appreciate your creative names on our Patreon uh, page they bring us joy each week when you come up with some new ridiculous name that we can then use on the air for your comments that's uh that's because uh, I also support Star Wars Minute, and every week <laughs> they do a rundown of the names, so you always try and get like a Star Wars pun in there for them. Okay, Aaron, Keith, thank you so much for joining us. I want to remind everybody to go to iTunes and leave us some positive feedback if you're so inclined. And, of course, join us at Patreon, because as of this episode, we will just have given away a copy of the 33 and a third book on Dig Me Out that we did for our 300th episode. So congratulations to whoever won that particular book with one of Yay. our 12 Patreon subscribers. So <laughs> congratulations. I have a chance. You have a chance. You have a 1 in 12 chance now. Uh, <laughs> or did, depending on when this comes out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We